Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got an I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here special. For those of you overseas who don't know, that is the show in which they lock up a bunch of celebrities previously in a lovely Australian rainforest, but now thanks to COVID, in the confines of an ancient ruinous castle here in good old Britain. The castle isn't just any old castle. You've heard it on this podcast before. Obviously, folks, I keep you all up to speed on what's going on in the world. This is Gurich Castle, an amazing Victorian castle, now ruined. It looks out over Liverpool Bay, the wonderful northwest corner where England meets Wales, where the mighty rivers, the Dee, the Ribble, the Mersey, and many others empty out into the Irish Sea. It sits high on the escarpment there, dominating Edward I's invasion route west into Gwynedd, into North Wales, where my family are from, by the way, so uh, we take these things very seriously. It's the route, I say, Edward I, the route the Romans would have taken from Chester up along the north coast of Wales to Anglesey, and Edward I did it during his invasions in later centuries. The site was owned by the Lloyd family, who were the ancestral owners of Gurich, apparently for a thousand years. Remarkable. In the 19th century, Lloyd Hesketh Bamford Hesketh, who was the High Sheriff of Denbyshire, he built a kind of mock early sort of Victorian Gothic castle high on the escarpment there. It was then one of the prime houses of 19th century England and Wales for generations. But it fell on hard times subsequently, as you'll hear in this podcast, and ended up ruinous, completely destroyed, stripped for the lead and the building materials that scavengers could prize from its craggy walls. Until, that is, it was rescued by a schoolboy. This is truly one of the most remarkable stories I have come across in history since I've been doing this podcast. A wonderful young man, Mark Baker, who grew up in a nearby school, saved the castle in a way that you're about to hear. In this episode of History, I visit Gurich Castle got underneath the security fence, ITV didn't stop me, and just before they started filming I'm just able to get me out of here, I went to meet Mark Baker and find out just how he saved this castle and what his plans are to revive this national treasure. If you want to watch the documentary that accompanies this, you can see shots of the castle and watch the interview between me and Mark and learn more about the history. You can do so at History Hit TV. What it is, guys, it's like Netflix, but it's only history. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, we'll know you're a podcast listener. So we'll know that we'll give you a month for free and then your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. It's a sweet deal. So please go and check that out. You can go to our shop, History Hit Shop, and gift subscriptions to people and buy stupid hats and aprons, obviously, as well. In the meantime, everyone, here 
is Gurrick Castle and Mark Baker, the man who saved it. Enjoy. So this is the writing room, built in around about 1837 by Lloyd Hesketh, Bamford Hesketh, and he built the castle for his home. His family had lived here for nearly six or seven hundred years in the earlier house, and he wanted to build this monument to his mother's family, the Lloyds of Grich. So when we bought the castle 2018, this was completely ruinous, and we've spent the last couple of years doing it up. Well, this is clearly the place to talk about the history of the castle because it's cosy, it's got fire, it's not like a ruin like the rest of the castle. It looks medieval, but how old is what we're seeing here? So it's quite an interesting construction because you've got this medieval core, which was the house of the Lloyds of Grich, and then around about 1810 they started to build and build and build. And the guy who did the work was really interested in archaeology and he was studying lots of the castles of Edward I and the native princes of Wales, and he wanted to kind of create this homage to medieval architecture. So what you see mostly is Georgian, um, but when you look closer, you can see hints of the medieval that was here originally. We're on the big Edward I invasion route into North Wales, and we've got Conway Castle. Well, it's medieval revivalism. The first proper attempts at medieval architecture being rebuilt in Europe. So it's more into the tradition of the native castles rather than Edward I, because Lloyd, who built it, was descended from the native princes. Right, so Cricketh Castle. Yeah. yeah. Not these English castles up the road here. No, although the tower in at the moment is a copy of one at Rutland Castle, which was built by Edward I in, I think, the 1270s, 1280s. So this is a copy of the Water Tower. So there was a family who lived here for hundreds of years and had a substantial medieval house up here. And do we know what that looked like? So from what we can tell from the archaeology, it's a timber-framed hall house and lots of that was reused by Lloyd in 1810. It wasn't huge. There are a couple of illustrations. We've got a really good kind of um, corpus of material from around about 1800 Um, because there was a poet that lived here called Felicia Hemans, Felicia Brown, who had her first book published when she was 13 or 14, and she was inspired by the landscape and the medieval buildings and so on. So we know quite a bit about it. We know what the landscape was like, and in the records there's references to the house being burnt in a fire around about 1810, which I think was a catalyst for Lloyd to kind of look at rebuilding. And it became this huge castle. So Lloyd was really interested in building and I think the actual process of building fascinated him and going into the techniques of using hot lime, which was what the medieval masons would have done, through to selecting the stone from very close to the site. All of this was in this tradition. And he studied medieval manuscripts, he studied the buildings, he even had an architect called Thomas Rickman from Liverpool advise on the Gothic windows, which were a mixture of designs from Chester Cathedral, where Lloyd had grown up in Chester in the 1780s and 90s. So it's all, it's a fusion of, in the melting pot of his mind, he had all of these references, but then it was putting it together 
as this kind of monument to his mother who died when he was about 11 or 12. So we're in the Countess's writing room here. Where did this Countess live? The descent went through the female line, so you have the surname changes. So Lloyd's mother was the heiress of the estate. Then Lloyd's family name was Hesketh. So Francis Lloyd, Lloyd's mother, married a Robert Hesketh of Chester in the 1780s. So the family name became Hesketh. And then two generations later, the heiress of the estate, Miss Hesketh, married the 12th Earl of Dundonald. And she viewed herself, and she would say this in various like speeches and so on, that she was the last of the Lloyds of Grich. So she was the last of this nearly thousand-year history. And um, when we go down to the beach house, you'll see the family tree. There's a pedigree roll-up, um, which shows that kind of going back over a thousand years. She was born in 1859, very wealthy. She was the only child. And this room is really kind of captures her life story. So above the fireplace, we've got picture of her becoming a druid at the 1910 Estevod in Colwyn Bay and she had the stones dragged from the estate here so she could be kind of awarded her bardic degree on the stones of her ancestors and she took the name Rhiannon from the Mabinogion so this whole kind of Welsh revival this romanticism she really bought into and she was also a poet so this is why this is called the writing room so she had her desk in front of the window and she would be inspired by the view out. And what happened after her? So she married when she was 19 and her husband was in the military. Um, they had five children. By her mid-30s, she had come into her inheritance here. She found that she was very rich. She wanted more independence, but because of the Great Reform Act, she really didn't have many rights. But her father had been quite savvy and created a trust for her. So she had complete control with her trustees of everything. And then with every successive kind of act of parliament giving women's rights back, she had more control. So by the early 20th century, she felt that she didn't really need her husband around. So, um, so she basically not asked him to leave. I think they'd grown apart and he bought a house in Scotland. She remained here. And she became really dedicated to things such as women's suffrage and Welsh culture. She became very involved with the royal court, so like with um, Alexandra and Edward VII. They were friends of hers and she kind of became part of society and, you know, all of the gentry and she was involved with them. So did Edward VII come here? He nearly did, but we know that Queen Alexandra was going to visit. But then the First World War broke out. So there was a great wing built onto the castle, which had the marble staircase, and that was to receive Queen Dowager or the Queen Mother at the time. But then August 1914, war broke out and everything kind of stopped. So the Countess died in 1924, and she hadn't revealed what was in her will. So when the great reading of the will came, a year after her death, she had disinherited her husband and most of the family and left it to the nation. So she had a lot of foresight that she saw in Wales all the national institutions going to Cardiff or Aberystwyth. There was nothing up here. There still isn't a national institution on the north coast. So she was trying to circumnavigate that by leaving the castle to the nation. So she left the castle, first of all, to the Prince of Wales, who would later be Edward VIII, who had visited in 1923, so a year before she died. And then it was also going to be a royal home. So that was the main main aim, that the royal family 
hadn't had a house in Wales since technically the dismantling of the castles in the Restoration, so the 1660s, and when they were decommissioned. So she saw that there was a need that the royal family would have to stay in like, the aristocracy's houses of, in Wales. They had nowhere to stay. So that was what she thought would happen. But because she died so suddenly, she had diabetes and she had a heart attack at the age of 64, everything fell apart. So her husband came out of the woodwork and said that she'd gone mad and they didn't want a scandal. And then you can, you've got to see the kind of the position from you know, George V, you know, his cousin had just been executed, the Tsar of Russia, 1918. You know, six years later, he's been left a huge castle in Wales with quite a bit of cash and great collections, but it was just they didn't know whether they would be around as a, you know, a royal family. So the husband, kind of in this room, apparently, he burnt all of his wife's papers. So it's all very dramatic. So the family held on to it? So the family bought it back. And the Earl said to his children, who were very keen to kind of take up residence, that no member of the family shall ever live here again. And that's what happened. So the contents were mostly sold off in the late 20s, um, 1928. And then there was a series of sales in the 1940s. And the final estate sale was in 1946. So you've got nearly a thousand years of this family's history on this one site coming to an end under an auctioneer's hammer. So, Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget just as soon as... Run. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. And then it had a bit of a sad life after that. Well, it did and it didn't. So in the 19, late 40s, it was the first country house to open to the public. And it became the showplace of Wales. It was fantastic for employing people. It's had about 200 employees. So when the family lived here, they had about the same amount of people. And that continued right up until the early 1970s when it became a jousting centre, a medieval kind of theme park. 
And it was then that the rot started to set in because they were more interested in the entertainments outside rather than looking after the fabric of the house so the roof was never maintained. You know, basic things like gutters weren't repaired and you know, over a decade, room by room, they started to shut it down. So by 1985, which is when it shut to the public, there was only three rooms open, which was the bar, the restaurant and um, one of the bar lounges, which were the big rooms in the house. And then it was bought by an American property developer in 1989 and he had grand plans for turning it into a hotel, an opera centre, but um, all of that fell apart and New Age Travellers moved in in 1995 and that's the kind of the death knoll for the place because they asset strips everything from slates on the roofs down to mint and tiles in the kitchens. So it was just being torn apart, the fabric's being torn apart. Totally. And what was really sad was that in the mid-90s, most of that kind of historic fabric, which is what makes a place, was intact. But we're quite thankful in some ways that it wasn't a fire, that it was asset stripped, so the items do survive somewhere. So one day we hope to get them back. And what state is it in now? So throughout the late 90s, it was because there was no roof, basically. The interiors just collapsed, so there's virtually nothing surviving inside. It's completely ruined. What stage does the young Mark Baker get involved? So it was in, in the mid-90s that I first got involved. So it was passing it every day to and from school and seeing it go from, you know, it was a caretaker here until 1994. And then suddenly the place was in darkness and going back and from school, you would see lights on and suddenly that stopped. And then I saw loads of kind of like caravans and... One of the New Age travellers had a huge coach, which they parked on the main terrace. You could just see this big coach. And I thought, like, what's going on there? So as a kid, just kind of snuck up here and just walked into this scene of kind of... It was like an apocalypse, but everything was, like, out of the building, laid out for sale. And that really kind of struck a chord as a child, just seeing so much history just being kind of sold off for, for no reason. So from the 1920s onward, the family weren't living here? So, from 1924, the family stopped being in residency with the death of the Countess. It's really kind of very typical of what's happened to the country house in Britain. However, like many, many country houses during World War II, it was requisitioned by the War Office and it had a very special purpose. It was a home to 200 Jewish refugees and um, they were brought over as part of Operation Kinder Transport. And the story goes that it was one of the last trains out of Germany that these children were on, and um, they ended up here in North Wales. You've obviously got this extraordinary castle up here. How many rooms? So there's around about 120 rooms originally. We need to do a proper count to make sure. (laughs) And then what else is around it? I mean, is there a big estate? So there is an estate. Um, It's about 250 acres still. Originally it was about 6,000 acres, so it's kind of reduced down a lot. But one of the the buildings that we've just finished restoring is the beach house, which was used by the family. So if you want to have a look, we can head down. Let's do it. Cool. Next up, Mark Baker took me to the beach house, a few hundred metres away from the castle, where the family used to head down to the beach and go swimming. So this beach house is obviously completely restored. This is your dream for the wider estate? So this building was burnt out in 2006. So we bought it same time as the castle and I wanted to kind of just test out some ideas on how to restore somewhere. 
this is basically a miniature version of the castle built by the same designer same craftspeople same color schemes and so on so it's just quite fun to on a smaller scale just try things out well you mentioned you, you bought this i mean t- how fill in the gap of the story from the from the school kid walking past and breaking in and looking at the place being smashed up to international man of you know <laughs> estate owning mystery oh dear so when i was about probably 12 i set up the castle trust i just wanted to do something to kind of save the place hang on you were tw- you were 12 years old yeah yeah it's quite weird looking back but at the time it you know it was normality for me how do you set up a trust when you're 12 i don't know how i did it really i just kind of followed the instructions and <laughs> went through all of the you know rigmarole of having a solicitor i wasn't able to be a trustee at the time but i could be the company secretary because there was no kind of limit on age and had to raise a certain amount of money to get charity registration. So I quite like a challenge. So You're not from a vast amount of family wealth, is it? No, 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 not at all, not at all. But my parents were just very encouraging and said, you know, do what you like if you're well behaved. And uh, I think they approved of me doing this sort of thing. Did it begin as a school project? or No, no, it was outside of school. It was something that kind of developed during the summer holidays. So being an only child, it was quite boring, so I had to kind of get something to occupy my mind, and I was always in love with history, so... And then, you, so you started a campaign to save the castle, and what was your first step? So one of my first steps was to write to the Prince of Wales and the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, at the time. So he'd just been elected, so this would have been 1997, and, yeah, I was like 11, 12, and... I just said that I was really kind of shocked by the state of the castle and why nothing was being done. And to my surprise, I got a reply back from the Prince of Wales, who was very encouraging. And then a year later, I ended up meeting him. And he said to me that you should write a book about the place and took that you know, by royal command to kind of turn all my research into something that was you know, the first ever kind of work on the castle. So at the age of 14, I had my first book published. So, okay, so 14, you've published the book on the castle. Was there a turning point when you thought, actually, this is going to happen? We're going to bring this back into the public space? So I think the, the big turning point was probably in the early 2000s when we did a big feasibility study, you know, looking at the economic viability of the castle because there'd been talk about it being demolished and that it could never be restored. And then we were able to prove it could still be a going concern. So that kind of set us up on quite a strong footing to approach the local authority who considered compulsory purchase and it came very very close to it being purchased by the local council um, in the 2000s but I think the big change was getting the American owner who was absentee to put it up for sale and it broke that deadlock that had just been trundling along for years and years and it was during his ownership that the place got asset stripped. So you found some American who'd probably half forgotten he owned the place? It was difficult. Um, So, you know, you've got to kind of think back to the 90s when the internet was in its infancy and California was like another world away. You know, they were just like a name in a a phone book. But today you've got things like Street View and so on. You can see where they live. But back then it felt like he was literally on the other side of the world. But you got in touch with him? Yeah, it was useful because having that dialogue, you know, did start to move things forward and getting him to sell the place. And it was breaking that deadlock, which really has kind of been the catalyst. You know, if he was still owning it now, we'd still be stuck. And how much money do you have to raise to buy it off him? 
So he actually sold it to a property developer who we were partnering with called Clayton Hotels. They paid about 850000 2006. So, and then we paid um, in 2018, you know, not short of a million. So it was a bit more, but sometimes you've got to pay a bit more to, to break that, that cycle because it just gets kind of bounced around the market. It's got to be kind of a, a point where you say, you know, this is, this is it. And what's the plan now? The long-term plan is to re-roof the main house, bring it back into use, and it'd be great to... Um, it's all about public access, getting people in there, enjoying the place, learning about local history. And also, it's unusual because there's about 2,000 years of history on this one site. starts with the Iron Age, the Sparrow Iron Age hill forts. It goes right through to you know medieval battles taking place in the park. And you've got the building of the castle. And then you've got the story of the country house in the 21st century. So it's about storytelling, engaging people, but also it's got to pay for itself as well. So that's why doing up the beach house, T. Crun, as a kind of a pilot to see how doing a holiday let landmark trust style. So it's very much kind of in keeping with being a historic building. You know, that's a long term use for most of the building. And then the main rooms will be open for like exhibitions, events, weddings and so on. Filming, you know, it's kind of very versatile. There's a glint in your eye. You're still a young man. Are there any other gigantic heritage rescue projects you've got in mind over the next few decades? Maybe. I've really thought about it. There was a house I always loved because it was so kind of gothic and romantic. A house called Bryn Kier, near to Porthmadoc, which was ruined in the Second World War. Did some archaeological excavations there. I'd love to uh, see that restored one day. The last thing we did was pop inside the beach house and look at the enormous family tree that hangs on the wall. It goes way back. So here we go, family tree now. We've got the top Llewellyn, obviously. And then it goes all the way down. And, uh, sorry, what date is this? So we f- think that's late medieval. Right, OK. So this one, so we're in the Elizabeth I, and then there's a few missing... And then they go back to one of the earlier ancestors. And then it kind of comes down. So this is the... Definitely know that this guy was living in... John Ap William. Yeah. 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 1598. And we've got it going down right to the heiress, Frances, who was the last of the Lloyds of Greer. Mm-hmm. She married Robert Hesketh of Chester. And their son, Lloyd, built the castle. Right. And he married Lady Emily Ligon, who's daughter of the Earl of Beecham from Madrasfield, and then went down to Roberts, who married Ellen Jones Bateman from Abigale, who was a descendant of Sir Isaac Newton's family, and then you go down to the Countess, who was the last member of the family to live at the castle. So this was made probably mid-early 1880s. With that, I wished Mark Baker all the best. Left Gurich Castle. I'll visit next time, hopefully, when we're allowed to go poking around, when I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, has left and got out of there. In the meantime, as you're watching the TV show, just remember the extraordinary story of the place where it is set and look forward to visiting it when Mark and his team have restored it to its former glory. I 
hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favor to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.